And I invite you then to take up your Bibles and let us look again at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We have taken upon ourselves the pleasant task of going through the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, and this will be our third sermon on this book. Last week we took as our text, verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And this week we want to continue, and we shall look at verses 5 to 10, and God willing we hope to finish this chapter this evening. So then our text is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and from verses 5 to 10. And I do have uh, three things that I wish to highlight uh, from these verses for our edification. The title I'd like to give to the sermon is The Gospel of God. The Gospel of God. And as we said last week, our subject was mainly uh, about election. And how Paul said, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And we dwelt for a few moments on how he was able to come to this understanding of their position. And we highlighted that in verse 3 we have the three cardinal graces of faith, love, and hope. And we drew from that that these individuals who had received the gospel exhibited these three Christian graces in their lives. But the, the chapter goes on to give us more evidence to substantiate what the Apostle Paul is saying, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I mean, how did Paul know this? And this is just an introduction to help us, but how did Paul know this? Well, it wasn't by any direct revelation from heaven. It wasn't by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And nor was it by any voice or vision. In other words, there was nothing supernatural that would cause him to come to this position. Simply, he saw their lives. And looking at their lives, he was able to come to that conclusion. And it wasn't just him. It was Silas, Silvanus, and Timotheus, Timothy. They all came to this position that these Thessalonians were truly beloved of God. They were the elect of God. And it revealed it to them in their behavior. Now this is a very sensitive subject, but it speaks about uh, one's assurance. And ultimately, of course, only God knows those who are his. This is foundational. This is what we build on. Ultimately, God only knows who his people are. A person can be a Christian, but they might not have the strength to confess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always reminded that that day of judgment that people laugh at, but we know is real, that day of judgment will be a day of surprises. There will be people there who said, Lord, Lord, 
but they were not the Lord's people at all. And therefore, someone might truly be a Christian, but doesn't confess and hasn't got the strength to confess. We would hope that would not continue, but that well may well be the position now. Now, a person may be a Christian and may confess that they are a Christian. They make a profession, and we cannot deny their profession in any way. But they might not have assurance of that. That happens. Many people don't have an assurance of salvation. We should all seek to have this assurance, the full assurance of faith. We should endeavor to strive for it. But not everyone gets it. That's just the way it is. And then there are others who might indeed have the full assurance of faith. And they're absolutely convinced that they are Christians and no one's going to deny it or doubt it. But that assurance, it can come and go. It can wax and wane. They could lose it for a time. They might lose it and never regain it. These things happen. But Paul was convinced here that these persons were true Christians. I think we're to understand that he is speaking generally about the church in Thessalonica. There's no perfect church. And as far as, as, far as he could see, uh, they were Christians. They were beloved of God. But he's speaking generally here. I don't think we're meant to think for one moment that every single person there was indeed a Christian. These are just some general remarks. But we want to look at them. And we want to, as we look at them, we want to place ourselves beside them. Because here we have first century genuine Christianity. Genuine Christians. A genuine Christian church. And we want to put ourselves alongside them. To see where we are. We are to examine ourselves. We are exhorted to do that. And we want to use the word of God here to line ourselves up. To see if our life matches their life. Three things then that we want to draw from these few verses. What about them? First of all, they were an exemplary people. They were an exemplary people. They were a great example and there are a number of things that would highlight that this for us. And basically we would find this in verses 5 to 7, where we have here the exemplary people outlined. First of all, they received the word. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. It didn't come in word only, but it did come in word. The Apostle Paul did come and preach the gospel to them by word. He did come preaching. Yes, we'll go on and notice it wasn't a word only, but it did come by someone coming forth and preaching the gospel to them. We possibly don't remember exactly what happened in Acts chapter 17 when we read it some time ago, when we got the Apostle Paul going to Thessalonica. And, or at least when he began his 
second missionary journey when he went to Philippi. And then because of that he went on to Thessalonica. But we know that when he was in Philippi he would, he would go to the synagogues first. This was his normal pattern. Any place he went to, any new place, he would go to the synagogue. Why would he go there? He would go there because there was Jews and the scriptures were there and he had a foundation to build from. And what would he do there as he was preaching the gospel? First of all, he would lay down this fact that the Messiah, the Christ, when he came, he would have to suffer and he would have to die. He made this a foundational step as he went to present the gospel. He first went along there and said to them, taking the scriptures, looking at the scriptures, telling them this is what had to happen because they were so inclined to think of a, an illustrious warrior who was going to come and deliver them. He had to correct them. He had to tell them first that there was a cross first. There was suffering and there was death before the Lord Jesus, before the Messiah would enter into his glory. And once he had established that, the next thing he did, he spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke about his incarnation. He would speak about his birth, about his baptism, about his life about his teaching, about his miracles and all that he did, and then about his passion and his death and his resurrection and ascension and glorification and the fact that he was coming again. And once he had done this, he would take the first point and the second point and join them together and say, this Jesus that I preach unto you, he is the Christ. This was his third point. Taking the first and the second, joining them together and say, Look, Christ indeed is the Messiah. He fulfills all that you find in the Old Testament scriptures. And we know that in Philippi, <coughs> he was persecuted. And when he went and would have preached much the same in Thessalonica, he was there for three Sabbaths in the synagogue. He would have preached exactly the same to them there. And after three Sabbaths, the Jews had enough of this, and he was out. But some of the Jews did believe, some of the God-fearers did believe, and some of the principal women did believe. And they came out, and we're, we believe that they then gathered in the house of one Jason. And the Apostle Paul then had a nucleus of a church. And this is the nucleus of the church of the Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. And then he began to minister to the Gentiles, and the church grew. But the word of God was proclaimed to them, and there'll be no church, no church, unless the word of God is proclaimed. And that's what Paul did. And what happens, friends? They received the word. They received it. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. No, they received it. And they received the gospel wholeheartedly at the beginning. Now this is important. They didn't receive it half-heartedly. They received it wholeheartedly. They recognized this was a message from God. And here were God's messengers delivering this message 
and there was nothing haphazard about it. They believed it, and they absorbed it. They received it wholeheartedly. And the very fact that they received it wholeheartedly would encourage us to believe that because of this, then they went on and they grew in their faith. And very often, friends, if we're going to make progress in the Christian life, it's very important to start off well. And that's what they did. They received the preached word. As someone said, the Spirit without the Word is weaponless. The Word without the Spirit is powerless. So what happened to them? The Gospel came. They welcomed it. And then the Gospel went out from them. That's what happens. They received it. Then it went out from them. The gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. It came in the power and in the demonstration of the Spirit and in the Holy Ghost. And he goes on here to say, and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Now, commentators are not agreed by what it means here, and in much assurance. Was it that the Thessalonians received it in, a, in assurance, much assurance? Or is the much assurance a reference to Paul and the preachers? And that word assurance could well be confidence or conviction. And maybe a light reading of it would suggest to us that the gospel came to them with much confidence and much conviction. Well, that may well be true. But I am inclined to believe that when it's talking about much assurance and conviction and confidence, it was more coming from Paul and his associates. Why do I say that? Well, Paul, Timothy... And Silas were absolutely convinced about the reality of the gospel. They had tasted the power of the gospel in their own lives. Look at the Apostle Paul. His life was transformed because of the gospel. He was a persecutor. He was one who hated the church and sought to destroy it. But when he had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, his world was turned upside down. We know very little about Timothy and Silas, but they would have known the power of the gospel in their own lives also. And therefore, when Paul preached the gospel, it was with conviction. He believed what he was saying. He believed the reality. He believed in the forgiveness of sins. He knew it himself, and he knew the Lord Jesus Christ was going to come again. And that they were going to, be, going to be delivered from the wrath to come. He knew all of these things and he believed all of these things. He believed the resurrection. He believed in the ascension. He believed that the Lord Jesus Christ was glorified today. And that, and that he sits at God's right hand today. And you can be sure that he would have passed on this conviction and confidence in the gospel to those who heard. And therefore, I'm inclined to believe that this is talking about the preachers themselves. 
as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Well, whatever they would say about the Apostle Paul, well, that man believes it. They might not believe it, but that man does. And surely this is what's required. If we're ever going to do anything for the Lord as far as the gospel is concerned, if we don't believe it, who's going to believe it from us? Who are you going to convince? And this does not just apply to preachers. It applies to those who maybe have the opportunity to witness one-to-one. If we don't believe it, it's highly unlikely anyone else will believe it. Oh, we know God is sovereign. We know that. And we know God can use anyone he likes. We know that. But ordinarily speaking, friends, if we're not convinced about this, we'll convince no one else. And of course, you understand that we cannot make anyone Christians We know that's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. But you get my point. Who's going to listen to someone who's mealy-mouthed and who really doesn't care or who really doesn't believe in what he's talking about? We don't want that. We want people with conviction. We want people who believe this. And more than that, we want people whose own lives have been transformed by the gospel. And this was certainly true of these three individuals there. They were exemplary also because they followed their spiritual leaders. They followed their leaders. Verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. What does this mean? The word here that's translated followers means that they imitated the apostle and his followers. They not only believed what they said, they actually sought to live like the apostles, uh, or the apostle and Silvanus and Timothy. They wanted to walk in their footsteps. They saw something of Jesus Christ in the preachers. They accepted not just the, the message, but the messengers. And of course, what it goes on to say, and you become followers of us and of the Lord. In other words, they put the teachings that Paul and others had preached to them into action. It wasn't just doctrine. It didn't just touch their heads. It motivated them. It touched their hearts, as the gospel should. And they imitated Paul, walked in his footsteps. There's a verse in Hebrews that's apt to to quote here. Hebrews chapter 13. There the Apostle Paul is summing up this long and difficult book. And in verse 17 he's telling them something practical. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. 
That's exactly what we see worked out here. People following, walking in the footsteps of their leaders. Obey them that have the rule over you. And they followed their leaders in the nicest possible way. Another reason that they set an example was they suffered for Christ. Again, verse 6, the word in much affliction. They suffered for Christ. They weren't just Christians when the sun shone, when difficult times would come, as they did. Because we notice, in, for instance, in chapter 2 of the same epistle, verse 14, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which is in Judea, are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. It wasn't easy for them to be Christians. Paul had to depart from Thessalonica. And just because he departed, things did not get any easier for those he left behind. And the Thessalonians were Christians were being persecuted by their fellow countrymen and by the Jews. So they were truly taking up their cross. They were being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were not ashamed of it. And they were prepared to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is something we want to ask ourselves. We all by nature want an easy life. No one wants difficulties. No one wants trials. No one wants things that are hard for flesh and blood. But if we're going to be true-hearted Christians, then we must encounter this. It's inevitable. They were happy to suffer for Christ. And then under this heading, there's another reason why they were exemplary. They encouraged other churches. Verse 7. So that ye were ensamples or examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Here were the Thessalonian Christians. How long were the Christians? We don't know. How long was Paul with them? Again, we don't know. But it wasn't a very long time. And he'd left a fledging church and he was concerned about them. But he had no need to be concerned because they were beloved of God. And as because of this, they were making progress in their Christian life. And no doubt people were talking about them. You see that people in Thessalonica? Well, I don't have much time for Christianity, someone might say. I don't have much for this new sect, Christianity. And another would say, well, look at their lives. See their lives. See the changes. See what's happened. There must be something in this Christianity. Because these people have turned from idols and turned from fornication. And they've turned their lives upside down since they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people all over Macedonia and all over Achaia were talking about this church. Because they had received the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. And they were an encouragement. Oh, friends, that we were an encouragement. Oh, that individual Christians would encourage other Christians. Oh, that this congregation might encourage other congregations. Oh, that other congregations might encourage us. 
Oh, that we were in the business of mutually encouraging one another. This is what happened here. This young, fledging gospel congregation, they were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Their example, directly or indirectly, was a great encouragement to other churches. And again, the book of Hebrews, we could quote a verse that's very apt and appropriate for us to consider this. And let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works. Often we provoke people the wrong way. We can wind them up the wrong way. But we are to provoke positively and to love and to good works. Are you an encouragement? Am I an encouragement? Do we encourage one another? We need every encouragement we can get these days. Therefore, let us be ones like them, that we would encourage one another. Well, they were an exemplary people. Do we stand out? Do you stand out? People might reject your Christianity. They might not accept your Bible. They might not accept the, the root of your Christianity, but they cannot deny the reality of it. That should be the case. Is that the case? How do you measure up? How do I measure up? They were an exemplary people. Secondly, they were an enthusiastic people. Verse 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Thessalonica was a city. This was a city church. Thessalonica was on the main road from Rome into Asia Minor. It was a great commercial place, large population, good communications by the standards of 2,000 years ago, a big harbour. You can imagine a lot of people coming and going, a lot of people being there visiting and then going somewhere else. A lot of activity, a lot of passing to and fro in the night, as it were. And here was the city, here was this church in the city, like a city set upon a hill. And they were having an influence in this great city. People were passing through, and somehow they came in contact with someone from the Thessalonian church. And they would know they had contact with them. Why? Because they would, at every opportunity, they would say something about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the gospel, and how their lives had been transformed, how they had been taken from idolatry. You know, the Thessalonians, they were idolaters. And the main god they worshipped was Jupiter. You can just imagine some in the church when they come across people. Well, I used to go to that temple there. I used to offer my sacrifices to Jupiter. You know, I would go in, offer my sacrifice, take part in the, the religious activity, whatever I did, and I would go out, and nothing changed. 
Nothing changed whatsoever. But now that I'm in the Lord Jesus Christ, something has changed. What has changed? My sins are forgiven. I am reconciled to God. I have the gift of eternal life. I have a wonderful hope ahead of me. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. And I'm going into his eternal kingdom. And I'm going to be saved from the wrath that is to come. You can imagine. This would affect people. And it did. From you sounded out the word of the Lord. Not just in Macedonia and Achaia. But everywhere. They all knew about this infant fledging church. And they were using every opportunity that God had given to them in their providence to speak a word in season. Oh, does this not cause us to look at ourselves? How many opportunities have you passed by? How many opportunities have I passed by? Oh, you think the minister's bold and brash. You don't know the half. You don't know the half. These people were enthusiastic. These people, they didn't need t-shirts. They had a heart that had been transformed. A life that was transformed. And they were, they were bubbling over. Doesn't Jesus talk about pouring out the Holy Spirit into someone? Oh, I can't quote it now, but it's in John chapter 4 or somewhere in the John's Gospel. The Spirit welling up in them. Is that not what happened to them? And is that not what's happening to us? Enthusiastic. Out and out. To serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, briefly, they were an expectant people. Verses 9 to 10 And they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how ye turned to God from idols. To serve the living and the true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus. Which delivered us from the wrath to come. They were living in this glorious truth. They believed in the second coming of the Lord Jesus. We'll come more in depth to this as we go through this epistle and there may well have been one or two people who got it wrong well that's not unsurprising we don't always get everything right but the apostle Paul in his gospel presentation he must have covered the whole gamut of theology he never left anything undone and he would told them about this fact that Jesus had come, gone back to heaven, and he was now glorified and exalted, and he was on the throne, 
But he was waiting for that day when he will return. And they were waiting in expectation, with anticipation. This is the way it was for them. Now they may well have got it wrong, or some of them got it wrong. You know, the Lord, Paul goes on to tell us that the Lord's coming will be sudden. And they would have were thinking maybe that it was imminent. Well, it will be sudden. It will be like the lightning. It will be so sudden. But he went on to tell them it not necessarily going to be imminent. But nevertheless, it was a good frame of mind to be in. To realize, friends, that this world as we know it is passing away. And maybe too many of us have got our feet rooted and grounded in this world. Well, they didn't. They were looking up. They were looking to that time when the, he would come in the clouds. And this must have been a great motivation for them. What a, an incentive to evangelism. Because we know that when Jesus Christ comes, the day of grace is over. There's no gospel being proclaimed then. There's no call to repentance. It's all over. And this, no doubt, would have fired up their evangelism. And in this verse, he talks about the resurrection, about Jesus. And he was the one who was going to come, and he was going to deliver us from the wrath to come. What a day that will be. What a day when he comes. It'll be like no other day. It will be the ultimate day of the Lord. It will be like the flood. It will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be like the destruction of Jerusalem. All of these events put together and multiplied by infinity. That's what it will be like. It will be a terrible, terrible day. But it won't be a terrible day for the Thessalonian Christians. And it won't be a terrible day for the Christians in Partick this evening. But it will be a terrible day for those who are outside of Christ. And they were living in that expectation. Therefore, here we have then, we have these people, exemplary, enthusiastic, and expectant. Does this describe ourselves? Can we identify with this new century, first century Christianity? Friends, we hope that we can see some of these things in our Christianity. Because... Christianity, as we love to quote the verse, Christianity is the power of God unto salvation, and it turns us from sin and from self to serve the Savior. That's what it does. And if it doesn't, you don't have New Testament Christianity. You don't have 
the gospel of God. Amen.